Welcome to the Atlantic World. Episode 2, Columbus. Okay, so last time we very briefly set the groundwork. Europe's in castle and catapult mode still, and the bigger nations that will dominate the next 200 years are starting to look a little more recognisable. This episode, we're going to dive into the very first chapter of our story, with Christopher Columbus and his journeys to the New World. Now, of course, there were plenty of other capable explorers active in Europe, and even Asia, at the time. And it's this that makes me think that if it wasn't Columbus, then it definitely would have been someone else. So, let's talk exploration. As a species, we are pretty exploratory. It's in our DNA, I suppose. In a way, it might be argued that the nomadic life in which we first evolved is our most natural state, or at least the one that still gives us that itch to widen our horizons. But nevertheless, before long, the nomadic life gave way to settlements and agriculture, which spoke to our mastery of the earth. And as technology improved the harvests and lives of many people, so too did it spur in the darkest depths of some a desire for, well, more stuff. It's hard to toe the fine line between the wonder and the terror that accompanied the opening of the Atlantic world. I mean, some pretty awful things happened on a massive scale because of it. Soon enough, we'll be talking about the slave trade, near constant warfare, and the forced relocation of people who had to break up their way of life to serve the interests of their European conquerors. But instead of sitting there seething with rage at the injustice of it all, just keep in mind that not everyone was an absolute greedy monster who crossed the Atlantic Ocean. As I said in the last episode, the exact truth of what lay across the horizon was anyone's guess outside of myth and folklore, so I sincerely doubt that everyone involved in the enterprise of colonising the New World was consumed by greed and profit, though a great many certainly were. At the end of the day, we are looking at the grandest expansion of the known world to have happened in centuries, and this would have been, to some, as inspiring as the moon landings are to us. So what did people think was across the ocean? Well, way back in ancient Egypt, Claudius Ptolemy, writing from the Library of Alexandria in the 2nd century, described the extent of the world as ending at the Pillars of Hercules, two large rocks that strafe the passing from Gibraltar to Morocco. Outside of that lay the Alluvius Oceani, or Ocean Riverbed, that encircled the continents of Europe, Africa and Asia. By the Middle Ages, this belief had fallen out of fashion, and it was widely believed that a great ocean lay past the Atlantic horizon. They just forgot to factor in America being in the way. Beyond that horizon, who knew, could be icebergs or giants or just more empty land, could be anything. Perhaps the sea just carries on, and before you know it, you'll be approaching the coast of Japan. That's what some people thought anyway. But the world was about to get a lot bigger. The collective consciousness of Europe now had to grasp, somehow, the discovery of a seemingly endless continent and the stories of its bounty. There was fish, more plentiful and larger than anyone had seen before, strange brightly coloured birds and giant rodents that lived in waterfalls. For a time, I imagine, it must have seemed like the fabled Garden of Eden had been discovered. But that mystery was only to last for a time. Soon enough, ships would be carrying both the hopeful and the greedy to these new shores to establish a foothold, and from there the seeds of empire would one day bear fruit. 
But the race to America wasn't exactly on from the get-go. To the Portuguese, they didn't see it so much as a race in the way you might think, claiming as much territory as possible. Instead, like a game of civilization, it was about claiming the best resource tiles to make the most money, rather than setting up cities. If Columbus could reach land on the other side of the ocean, that would be great. But if those lands led to valuable trade routes back to Spanish merchants instead of the Portuguese, even better. So let's talk about the man himself, Christopher Columbus. He was born in the Republic of Genoa in northern Italy, as near as we can tell sometime in the year 1451. The problem with going back so far is that men of humble origins generally don't have a precise date or location of birth, neither of which we have for Columbus. But he has a holiday named after him, so good for him. Whilst I admit I'm not as clued up on Columbus as I would like to be, one thing that struck me in preparing for this episode is that there is a great deal of speculation about where he was and when. In the space of a decade, he seems to have sailed from his homeland to the Greek island of Chios, then to Bristol and on to Ireland, before continuing supposedly to Iceland and then south back to Lisbon, where he began running shipments to the Portuguese trading posts on the Ivory Coast of Africa. He was roughly around the age of 30 at the time, and by now had based himself in Lisbon permanently to better manage his investments. He married Filipa Perestrello, the daughter of Portuguese nobility, and had a son with her, Diego. Not bad for the son of a middling Italian cheese merchant. Columbus's Genoa was a merchant republic at the time. These were generally oligarchic, coastal, and spread liberally throughout the Mediterranean. They saw no benefit in conquering vast swathes of territory, but instead controlled a series of strategic ports that funneled the wealth of the world practically to their doorstep. By Columbus's time, Genoa had aligned itself with Iberian partners rather than its traditional Byzantine partners who, well, let's just say the Genoese could smell which way the wind was blowing, and it wasn't in the east. The Spanish and the Portuguese had established a presence in the Azores and the Canary Islands, funneling all of the spoils of Africa onward, through the Pillars of Hercules, and straight into Iberian and Genoese coffers. But the Black Death and countless wars of the past centuries, though now long in the past, had a considerable economic cost as well as a human one. The mining of gold and silver for bullion had practically ground to a halt, and the bills were coming due. Luxury goods from abroad wouldn't cut it, with no gold in the treasury to keep Spanish markets afloat. No gold, no currency, no value. In other words, Spain was looking at liquidation. Is it any wonder then that gold fever began gripping the continent? Yes, that is literally what it was called. Columbus's patron, the King Fernando of Aragon, wrote to him before his departure, get gold, humanely if possible, but at all hazards, get gold. Now, I, I know there's something to be said here about the inherent overdrive of capitalism in early modern Europe, but at the risk of losing some listeners, I'm gonna come right out and say that I don't plan on exploring the Marxist aspect of this period at least until way later on. We just don't have the time and Columbus is about to set sail and everyone just wants to get on with the journey. But if you're really into that sort of thing, check out pages 62 to 67 of the 2009 edition of The Atlantic World by Thomas Benjamin. Knock your socks off. So, by 1492, the Portuguese had already begun their own overseas empire with the explorations of Prince Henry the Navigator, and were establishing outposts across the western coast of Africa. So, when Columbus brought his proposal to them, he was refused. 
but the Castilians, initially reluctant but eager to catch up to their neighbour and ridden with gold fever, took Columbus up on his offer. He imagined that the world was much smaller than believed, and that the distance from the Canaries to Japan was 2,400 nautical miles. In actuality, it's more like just shy of 6,000 nautical miles, but he wasn't counting for a whole continent being in the way. But despite being dead wrong, Columbus's initial pitch impressed the monarchs of Castile and Aragon that we met last week, Isabel and Fernando, and they agreed to fund an expedition of discovery in 1492. He set sail with a small fleet of three ships that same year, the Nina, the Pinta and the Santa Maria. Two of the ships were caravels, light ships suited for exploration, and one was a larger cargo ship, much like the Caracs seen in abundance on European trade routes. The monarch's initial reluctance may be due to the fact that many were sceptical of attempting such a voyage into the unknown. Many captains, now settled into the routine income of a merchant's life, remarked confidently that nothing lay beyond the horizon but more sea, and they knew this because the Portuguese had tried before and failed. But Columbus, steeled by his confidence and knowledge of the seas, sailed south of the Canaries before catching the northeastern trade winds that would lead him across the ocean in just 33 days. Already believing himself to be divinely ordained to make this crossing, Columbus must have been doubly convinced by such a smooth voyage. At about 2am on October the 12th, 1492, a lookout on the Pinta sighted land and alerted the crew. The captain of the ship, confirming the sighting, then fired a cannon shot to alert the small fleet of their arrival. Now, this would have been great news for the lookout, with the Catholic monarchs promising a lifetime pension to the first person to sight land, but Columbus claimed to have seen lights on the distant shore hours earlier and snatched up the pension for himself. Not cool. The land they spotted was the island of San Salvador in the Bahamas. After a bit of time, they came across a much larger island, and they named it La Isla Española, what we now know as the island of Hispaniola. And he made observations of the quote-unquote Indians that inhabited it, so named because they thought they were exploring a group of islands in the Indies. These locals referred to themselves as the Taino and Arawak people. They were initially friendly and peaceful, more curious than anything. These strange new arrivals to their islands were pale-skinned and had moustaches, and wore full bodysuits made of polished metal. They must have appeared completely alien to them. Columbus's impressions of them were as follows. Many of the men I have seen have scars on their bodies, and when I made signs to them to find out how this happened, they indicated that people from another nearby island came to San Salvador to capture them. They defend themselves the best they can. I believe that people from the mainland come here to take them as slaves. They ought to make good and skilled servants, for they repeat very quickly whatever we say to them. I think they can very easily be made Christians, for they seem to have no religion. If it pleases our Lord, I will take six of them to your highness when I depart, in order that they may learn our language." As you can imagine, without much of a say in the matter, Columbus took a number of the Arawaki encountered prisoner, with the intention of returning them to Spain. European attitudes towards Indians are pretty much cut and dry here. If they're not Christian, they're going to have to become Christian, whether they like it or not. And this pattern will repeat itself in the coming episodes, with many New World peoples being thought of as nothing more than novelty trinkets to be presented as curiosities back home, in an effort to convince patrons of funding more expeditions. 
This wasn't helped by the prevailing attitudes towards race in Europe, which were, unsurprisingly, backwards, and many prisoners would die on the return journey, never seeing the coasts of Europe or their homeland again. Columbus spent three months on his first voyage around the Caribbean, taking prisoners and setting up outposts before returning to Spain in what must have been the most giddy, excitable frenzy imaginable. But his return would be complicated by an encounter with the Portuguese king, who believed his expedition to be in violation of treaties between Castile and Portugal, who you'll remember from last week were not on the best of terms. But once he made it back and reported in, it didn't take much to convince Isabel and Fernando to finance more expeditions, and the monarchs petitioned the Pope Alexander VI, better known as Rodrigo Borgia, to recognise Spanish claims to the New World. A Spaniard himself, Alexander agreed to declare all the islands and mainland discovered, and yet to be discovered, forever belonging to Spain. But the Portuguese, now biting their tongues, were alarmed at the threat to their success, and after some negotiation, the Treaty of Tordesillas divided the undiscovered continent from pole to pole at a point 370 leagues west of Cape Verde. That meant that Portugal kept a sliver of the coast of South America that would become Brazil, but retained the monopoly on their African and Indian Ocean investments. The Spanish, however, emboldened by papal decree, now sought to explore and exploit their newfound claims. And for those of you wondering how a nation can claim a continent that they haven't fully explored, with no regard for those who already inhabit the land, just add it to the list of arrogant things European monarchs will do to press their claims. And make sure there's lots of room, because that list is going to be pretty huge by the time we're done with this series. Not yet knowing what they had discovered, nor the scale of it, the news was met with little fanfare by many European geographers. They were hardly excited about the discovery of a new island chain off the coast of what they thought to be Asia. But Columbus was not deterred, and made three more voyages. The second journey in 1493 was proof of Spanish faith in his abilities. Seventeen ships set sail, carrying with them nearly 1,200 people, including priests, farmers, craftsmen, and enough supplies to undoubtedly call this Europe's first attempt to colonise the Americas. This voyage was far less wholesome than the first, and whilst mapping and naming the islands and choosing suitable spots for colonies was the aim, the enlarged expedition couldn't help getting involved in the affairs of the island's inhabitants. One of the main groups of people who inhabited the Caribbean islands were the Kalinago, or Caribs as they were known. They were a tribe who practiced cannibalism and used long canoes to travel from island to island, capturing members of other tribes and, well, eating them. There is some debate on whether this was outright cannibalism or a form of ritual cannibalism only performed at the conclusion of a conflict, but this is what happens when you only get the Spanish side of the story. Anyway, we know for definite that on the island of Saint Croix, Columbus's men ended up in a skirmish with the local Caribs. It was the first time that the Spanish had fought a New World people, and resulted in... well... yeah. The Spanish never attempted to settle the island, and instead moved on to a fort constructed on their first voyage to Hispaniola. There they found the fort in ruins following an attack by the local Taino people, along with 11 dead of the 39 Spaniards who had stayed behind as the very first colonists of the New World. If the first voyage assured the Europeans that the locals weren't going to be a problem, 
the second voyage taught them not to take anything for granted. Divinely ordained Columbus, after all, probably had little sympathy for the people he encountered on islands that he believed rightfully belonged to Spain. But before long, it was time to return home, though not before establishing a settlement on Hispaniola called La Isabella, after the Castilian queen who sponsored him. Columbus sailed for the Americas a third time in 1497, this time with just six ships, in an attempt to better explore the further reaches of the Caribbean and examine just where he was in relation to mainland Asia. Three of the ships, however, were bound for the colony on Hispaniola with supplies and relief, whilst Columbus sailed onwards to explore the lands further south. The journey was troublesome though, and winds were unfavourable whilst water was beginning to run out. Upon reaching the Caribbean, Columbus put in directly for the Spanish outposts he had established on his previous voyages. The ships sighted a new undiscovered island, which was notable for its three large hills, and named it Trinidad after the Holy Trinity. If you've ever wondered why so many Caribbean islands have Catholic names, it's because Columbus was super devout. Anyway, they found fresh water on Trinidad and pressed on with their original journey. Whilst sailing along the coast of the South American mainland, Columbus noted the muddy waters of the Orinoco River that flows through modern Venezuela, reasoning that this was no island stream but part of a larger continent. However, the idea that a previously unknown continent had been discovered still eluded him. But Columbus was in his late 40s and in poor shape from years at sea, whilst a ship wasn't the most hygienic place to be. By this point he had developed what could either be gout or reactive arthritis, exacerbated by the usual combination of diseases that were run-of-the-mill on sailing ships, and so he had to cut the expedition short and sail for home. The final voyage left Spain in 1502 and would be way more dramatic than any of the past three. He had spent most of his time furthering his explorations of the mainland, but a violent tropical storm had hindered all voyages in the area. As a bonus, his ships were rotten and poorly maintained. By now, the colony of Santo Domingo had taken shape on the island of Dominica, but the governor of the island denied Columbus access to the port. Instead, he had to weather the storm in the mouth of the Rio Jaina, nearby on the island. Whilst the first Spanish treasure fleet to leave the New World ignored the warnings completely and were swallowed by the storm. American gold was still hard to come by, and what had arrived so far wasn't even coming close to Spain's massive deficit. Once the storm had passed though, Columbus decided to try his luck further westward and explored the coasts of Honduras, Costa Rica and Nicaragua, before reaching Panama Bay later that same year. The drama of Panama would play out like this. Columbus had heard stories of gold and perhaps more interestingly a strait that led to another ocean. See, the voyage had initially hoped to find the Strait of Malacca that connected the South China Sea to the Indian Ocean. Still believing they were in the Far East, Columbus's interest was piqued. They encountered a local king known as Quibian. Whether this was a title or his name, we still don't know. But he wasn't one to welcome the Spanish with open arms, and warned them not to sail too far into the basin of the River Belen something the Spanish did with all haste, establishing a settlement on the river that was to be governed by Columbus's younger brother, Bartholomew. Quibian then began organising local tribes in resistance against Spanish claims, but the younger Columbus had cottoned on to Quibian's plans and captured the king along with his family. Still not one to let the Spanish have the upper hand, 
Quibian managed to convince the Spanish to throw him from the ship on which he was imprisoned, and whilst in the river, managed to break free of his bonds whilst the Spanish believed him to be dead. Bartholomew wouldn't be so lucky again, as Quibian rallied another assault on the settlement, routing the Spanish entirely. But in a final cruel twist of fate, Quibian's family, or at least those who hadn't attempted an escape amidst all the violence, were still imprisoned with the Spanish fleet. The ones who couldn't get away were all killed before the Spanish left. Meanwhile, Columbus had been organising things in Hispaniola, and had set sail to explore further towards the Cayman Islands, but another tropical storm left him stranded on the island of Jamaica for a year. Some of his men managed to construct a canoe capable of sailing across to Hispaniola, but colonial politics had begun to rear its ugly head, and the governor of the island refused to help, mostly due to his intense hatred for Columbus. During his marooning, he compiled his adventures in a letter to his royal patrons back in Spain. He spoke of his divine quest to discover and claim these strange new lands, and the rewards they have yet to reap because of his discoveries. Now in his 50s, ravaged by arthritis and losing his sight, perhaps Columbus knew that his story was coming to an end and wanted to preserve his legacy. Such an age wasn't unusual for the time, but being at sea for such long stretches and with ships being prime places for the spread of disease, a mariner's life was usually a short one. Whatever the reason, he soon returned to Castile and passed away unnoticed in 1506. To the very end, he believed that he had discovered Asia, and that he was underappreciated for his efforts. But with many hundreds of adept mariners in Europe eager to seek fortune and fame, it was only a matter of time before someone sailed westward. The only difference may be where they first landed, or under what flag they sailed. Soon enough, Columbus's discoveries would come to be seen for what they evidently were. Not the eastern shore of Asia, but a new continent altogether. You'd think that this would start off a frenzy of colonisation, but the European powers still didn't have a clear picture of what they were dealing with. Communication was still limited to the speed of a ship's crossing, and expeditions were far from a guaranteed success, so a lot of exploration was yet to be done. The prevailing aim was still to find a route west to Asia, but this would get sidelined by the discovery of what would become luxury goods to European markets, chocolate, tobacco, coffee, corn, potatoes, tomatoes, and the staple of millennials everywhere, avocados. I mean, without Columbus we wouldn't have pizza. It would be a slow process, but the Columbian exchange would shift the focus to America rather than Africa being a place for European powers to establish colonies and produce luxury goods themselves, rather than relying on the middlemen merchant republics or eastern empires. By the turn of the century, the English, French and Portuguese had started to make their own incursions overseas, but their contracts were conservative and limited to the same sort of exploration and constructing of forts that Columbus had undertaken. It would take half a century before the real groundswell of mass migration would take shape, with America's landscape, as well as its population, changing radically as a result. Europeans generally tended to view America as their sovereign right to claim, regardless of who had lived there first or for how long. It provided nations with their own monopolies on trade and gave them a convenient place to send undesirables that didn't conform to the religious or legal practices back home. And so colonial populations expanded well beyond their original purview as places to produce goods 
becoming quasi-nations in their own right. Over time, that quasi-nationhood would lead to independence for a plethora of New World nations who believed that their time as the subject of a European monarchy was at an end. Next time, we'll explore the early 16th century and the beginning of regular contact between Europeans and Americans. The Spanish would soon be arriving in the Valley of Mexico seeking riches under the infamous leadership of Cortes. So before we get started with that, I think it's best to take a look at what pre-Columbian Mesoamerica was like, just so we have a little bit of forgiving downtime before it starts to get all bloody and violent once the Spanish arrive. But until then, I'll see you next time.